Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the Real Dialogue Oddcast for business leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. Now, in good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. Without it, none of us even has a business. Today, a riveting conversation about the past, present, and future with the entrepreneur, CEO, and category designer who designed the category of revenue operations, and he founded the company Clary. My friend Andy Byrne is with us. Uh, He's also known widely in the industry as the Prime Minister of Revenue. And um, right now, Clary's doing an extraordinary thing, which is um, they became the category king in revenue ops, and now they are expanding the category to something that Andy calls revenue collaboration and governance. The other interesting thing about what he's done here is he and his team have gotten some of the most powerful and influential people in business jumping into the new revenue parade. Also, pay special attention to Andy's insights into how boards and investors are now starting to focus on revenue governance. And like all our great conversations, this one happens on multiple levels. As you listen to Andy, you'll also be getting a master class in how a CEO can be an evangelist for their company and their category. And I also want to share with you that Andy and I are friends and we do work together. And a little bit of background on that. You see, after Play Bigger came out in 2016, I retired from consulting and advising to CEOs. Candidly, I'd had enough with working with leaders who said they wanted to do something exponential, something legendary, and create a category, when in point of fact, they were just chasing demand created by somebody else. So after Play Bigger came out, I decided to retire. I took some time off, started podcasting, and as you might know, continued writing. And then something interesting happened over time. A few legendary entrepreneur CEOs got me out of retirement. And Andy's one of those CEOs, and it has been a blast working with him and his team. And uh, I was attracted to working together because, frankly, I think they are on a huge mission that matters. And Andy is exactly the kind of category designing entrepreneur I'd always dreamed about uh, working with. Oh, and one more thing. Today, there's a lot of dumb talk about personal branding. Uh, People are not brands. Personal branding is intergalactically stupid. Listen to the part of this discussion on how Andy and I met and why we moved forward in doing powerful, meaningful work together before we even signed an agreement. Now, the future belongs to the creative capitalist, people who go beyond knowledge work to create new categories of knowledge, new, if you will, creative capital. And to thrive today, legendary marketers and companies are using thought leadership, creative capital to design and dominate their categories. And that's why legendary brands and legendary creators turn to mighty networks. So if you want to dominate your category and mobilize your community to drive new growth fast, visit MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Now put your mind in a different place and hey ho, let's go.
Yeah, there's a million things I want to get into with you, Andy. Uh, maybe th- this is the first thing on my mind, which is what's it like being the co-founder CEO of a red hot company? Yeah. But at this moment in time, I mean, the last three years have been the three weirdest years in modern history. And certainly the three weirdest years to be running a startup uh, and and at a time where many startups have faced existential threats. And so just how's it been for the last couple, two, three years? Um, You know, it's interesting. I I was um, I was out skiing yesterday with a friend and he had asked me the same question about how how are things going? How are you feeling? I feel like, um, you know when I started the company as a founder, you have, you have a lot of excitement, um, but you're not yet making an impact (laughs) and you've got vision, you got hope. Um, what's really fun as I think about the last decade of work and the forthcoming decade, I've never been more excited. Why? And I was explaining to this gentleman, it's because of the impact that we're making. It's just so profound. Yes. We created a category. Um, that's from scratch and it's having a massive impact. We have over a thousand customers now and we get a lot of accolades that come through every day about how we've transformed the way they run revenue. But more importantly, um, I was mentioning to him, you know, this, the CNBC jobs report dropped last month and, you know, the fastest growing job in, uh, America is revenue operations. And it's one thing to create a category. It's another thing to create, um, what I call the revenue economy. And, um, that we happen to have created this job that is the fastest growing, most lucrative job right now in the industry in the United States. So that, that, that's really cool. And, you know, final thing I'll say that, um, is profound is, you know, we just achieved over $1 trillion under management that's through coming through our platform of pipeline that people are analyzing, that people are using to predict, will they meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And, you know, just stepping back, I would say that I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of um, going from the garage, just two of us trying to figure out, hey, what do you want to do next? To, you know, having a, a big impact just on, on the world. And, you know, we're just getting started. Well, and congratulations. It's incredible. Thank you. And it could be easy to skate by that. So, you know, one of the things we say in category design is new categories create new categories. And with technology, of course, new categories of technology create new categories of jobs. And you can say these things. They sound great in tweets and memes and shit. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, rah, rah. And and that's cool. But you and Venkat and in the beginning and now the whole team have created, and there's others in the category, of course, and adjacencies and so forth, but you guys really did create it and you're sitting there. And and so you wake up one day and CNBC is reporting on the fact that the category of job that got created as a result of the category of software that you created is now the number one fastest growing, most lucrative kind of a white collar job in the country. And then $1 trillion of people's revenue over a thousand companies are now quote unquote under management in on your platform. And so, you know, when you sit there and you're telling a buddy like about this on a ski hill or maybe having a beer, a glass of wine with your wife or your family or friends, you know, you're, you're, and you 
like does this shit sink in not really <laughs> i mean yes and no i mean it sinks in for a moment but i'm just so paranoid and excited at the same time about what's what's in front of us and what's possible i think that if i step back and think about well how did this come to be how did this actually happen you know there's the age old adage of hey what did the entrepreneurs see that others did not see and you hear that a lot about, oh, these successful startups that go from nothing to multi-billion dollar status and transforming the world. And what did the entrepreneurs see? What we saw was that revenue was not just an outcome. It was, it was a business process. If you've looked at revenue like a business process and you realize it's the most important business process in the company, but there wasn't a system that was built from the ground up an enterprise system to let them run the entire end-to-end process. That's what we saw that was kind of the biggest opportunity hiding in plain sight for us, frankly. Um, now, to your question about, wow, all of the, the accolades and the scale and the impact that we're making on the lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people now um, that are deemed revenue-critical employees. Um, you know, I'd say it's, it, it's, um, it's very gratifying. Um, but I think that we're just getting started. This is just the early innings of what will be a transformation, especially with, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, not just being, um, a buzzword that people use, but actually having it make a meaningful impact. I'll give you an example. So we just deployed Clary yesterday at a healthcare life sciences company. And we, uh, predicted, um, they had, a, they had a, a, um, $1.6 billion quarter. We predicted within a hundred grand that they would land that. So we go back and then we actually run the data and the machine predicts based on looking at all the data where they would land. And they were just shocked that we were able to be that accurate. And that was just turning the system on within a handful of hours, being able to showcase that is, is pretty powerful. So let's talk about this because, you know, obviously open AI chat GPT has changed the world in, in a very few months here with, um, hundreds of millions of users. Everything we see suggests it's the fastest growing, uh, consumer tech app in, in history. Yeah. And of course you, Clary has been working on ML and AI for a long time. You recently yep. announced um, revenue rev GPT, and so h- how is AI changing the way companies run revenue? And 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 when you say that a company that's doing one point six billion dollar quarters is is forecasting revenue precision within how how close to to the number, Andy? Hundred K. So uh, you crazy. know, excuse my French, but how the fuck can you forecast? A $1.6 billion quarter, which I assume has a lot of moving parts, which I assume is a omni-channel. They have multiple channels and yep. partners, and there's a complicated business. How do you get within 100K accuracy on a $1.6 billion number? Magic. Just kidding. <laughs> well, it is, kind of, it is kind of magic, frankly. Uh, it's actually pretty straightforward, right? Uh, the the algorithms uh, that we're using, you know, if, you, if you're a student of machine learning and you know, generative AI, the algorithms are all commodities. It's the data. Um, the data that we have um, is 
a very unique data set that allows us to do these predictions. What I would say is that, you know, it's one thing to make an accurate prediction where I think uh, the generative AI work and yes, we've been doing machine learning, you know, this harkens back to a previous company we started back in 2005, 2006. Uh, so we've been doing machine learning for a very long time. For us, it's about not just predicting, will you meet, beat, or miss on revenue, but reducing the time to revenue. If you think about um, the time it takes a company to get results from their revenue process, it's, it's really painful. It's, uh, it, it's, um, and I think about how long does it take a rep to update their deal, to know um, whether or not that deal is going to close, the manual steps. Generative AI can be very, very powerful. Chief of staff for that that rep. As we go up to a manager, think about what a, a manager, which is a revenue critical employee in sales, they have to have. They've got ten reps that have each have ten deals. How do they look at all of that data? Look at all the conversations, the relationships, the process that they're running. Some of these they're looking at, hey, what's the usage of the product that they're, so all of this is signal and what generative AI is going to do is reduce the time it takes for them to assess where they have risk, assess where they have opportunity. So in each human that's a revenue critical employee, what will happen is their time to revenue will shrink dramatically. And the result is an increase in efficiency and productivity. And if you aggregate that over time, you have just a profound impact on their, not just the accuracy of the AI, but of the company's ability to generate more revenue more effectively. Thank you for that. The thing that strikes me in this is, uh, in some ways, this was supposed to be the promise of uh, business intelligence, of BI. Uh, and while BI helped a lot and there were some really valuable, important companies that got created in that category. Um, and there's great BI technology. There's a, um, an anticipatory component of this. And, and here's what I mean. Uh, As a business leader, the more time you have with information that's material, the better, good or bad, right? So something positive is happening. The sooner we learn that and it's a trend, it's something we can build on, we can capitalize sure. on, et cetera. Or in the case of negative data, something's off. You know, if you, if you, you know, what do they tell us about cancer? Well, the reason we all go get tested and do all these things our doctors tell us to do is because the earlier you catch the cancer, the better off you are. Well, it turns out the yeah. same thing's true in business. And it's not very helpful if you learn with two days left in the quarter that we're going to miss by 20%. Yeah. Whereas if we're heading into the quarter and we know that's where we're at, then maybe we have 90 days to try to get to do something about this. And so I, this is leading me to a question, which is there's the power here that I see is by surfacing things earlier yeah. based on historical data trends. That is to say, historically yeah. in the quarter, at this point, the company is here and that means our accuracy is there, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess what I'm asking is, in terms of time to revenue, isn't it also yep. buying time? That is to say, I know about a problem or an opportunity a lot earlier than I might otherwise. 
Yes. And you, uh, the example you gave is an interesting one because you, um, as we think about time to revenue and the ability for machine learning, uh, for the AI to predict in week two, not in week 10, where you're going to land. Are you going to meet, beat or miss? Um, a lot of people say, Hey, we need to know that because we need to make sure that we don't miss our quarter. We need to know that early. Actually, there's also a there's an impact when you know you're going to kill the quarter. You're going to crush it. And we, I was just with the CEO who had mentioned this, the, you know, in the down, in a, in a down market, this company is a Clary customer. They're doing actually incredibly well. They're in the security space. And, um, before Clary, uh, because security is an incredible market, um, they had a lot of positive surprises and. You know, you would think, hey, no big deal. You have a po positive surprise. You, you beat by, you know, 150%. And what he was saying is that the difference of that is that because it was a surprise, because they didn't know until two days left, they didn't have the ability to, to do two things. They couldn't manage the additional capital that they're going to hire people to build systems. Um, and imagine... Uh, and they had to figure out how to, how to do the reporting on it. So it's a, while it's great news that they crushed their quarter, but imagine a world where now that they have Clary, we're predicting that beat and raise in a big way. In week two, they're actually deploying additional capital and R and D spend. They're opening up offices and other places. They're actually being very smart about the additional capital that we're predicting that will come in and the free cash flow that they will create earlier. And that has a compounding effect. And that's the beauty about time to revenue and about the AI's impact on that particular company and their ability to be growing even faster as a result that compounds over time, which I thought was very interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, people don't realize that a bad surprise, a bad, good surprise is not, of course, more revenue, more customers, customers buying more from us. We always like, but having been an officer and a director of multiple public companies uh, over time, you know, I know what it's like when it's the second to last day in the quarter and a rep shows up and you're a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company and a rep shows up with a billion dollar deal that wasn't on the forecast that's now at, in the final stages of contract. Yeah. And yeah. I've heard stories of, let me say it that way, companies who coming into the second or third final day of the quarter are overachieving so much because their forecasting was not accurate. They had a lot of uh, revenue leak and they had a lot of reporting leak where um, some CFOs will send the accounting and legal department home two days early at the end of the quarter so that those deals happen to happen, happen to occur next quarter. Uh -huh. And, you know, it's one thing if it's a small company doing these sorts of things, it's a whole other thing when you're a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company and you're in this weird ass situation where a good surprise is not good news in that particular moment. Yeah. What I'd say to that is, it's crazy that you have, you still have publicly traded companies that are using antiquated systems, old systems that were not built from the ground up to run revenue. 
and you realize it's not just about a hitting a number. There's a cascading effect, Chris, on the entire operating plan, everything, right? Um, and so in that regard, revenue is the most important business process. Now, uh, the unfortunate thing across lots of companies still today is that they run in what the industry calls the three-headed hydra. They're in the CRM. And so it's, it's really not their fault that they have these, these poor, these poor systems and they have these challenges and these surprises that happen. So they call it the three-headed hydra. They're in a CRM trying to use it to run revenue every day of every week of the, every month of the quarter. It, it, it then breaks because it's not designed to run these different workflows, these revenue workflows. So they export into Excel and you just have Excel hell is what they call it from rep to manager, to regional director, to geo lead, all the way up to the board room. And then they uh, break the Excel spreadsheets because there's too much data in them. So they would say, hey, let's export that to a Tableau, Power BI. And so that's the three different tools, CRM, Excel, BI. And it's a freaking nightmare. Um, and, you know, if, if, the, if the SEC and the retail investor community knew that that's the way companies were running revenue and calling the number. And they knew that there was that much risk that's behind the number because of these systems that are antiquated and are architectures that are 30 years old. Um, you know, that, that would put a, a big pause on their interest in that stock. Well, and to your point, you know, when you and I first started, as the kids say today, Andy, conversating, as we first started <laughs> conversating, yeah, this really struck me as, as, as such a powerful issue, which is how can you run a company when, and, and how is it we are where we are in terms of governance? You know, I mean, you and I have been around for a while. I, I remember yeah. Dodd-Frank. I remember Sarbanes-Oxley and many of these other things. And, and there has been a lot of new regulations over the last 20, 25 years that have been brought into pl place to improve, quote unquote, transparency and governance. Yep. And in some of our early discussions, as we started to talk about exactly this theme, you know, I remember distinctly, Andy, you and I talking about, well, so where is the revenue governance? Yeah. And, and sort of this aha that was like, well, wait a minute. Um, Revenue is the most important process in the company. Hard to argue. Yep. And revenue governance, first of all, is a term nobody had really thought about and was done by sort of milking the three-headed hydra the best you could. And yep. yet there were still very sophisticated, uh, very high-end, publicly traded companies with professional CFOs and professional CROs and so forth and so on. Who at the end of the quarter, um, it, it, it was it was always like a <laughs> sort of like sort of like walk, watching a NASCAR. You know, are they going to crash or are they not going to crash? Like it's and it, it's certainly it, it's a great yeah. way to screw up every Sunday, and it's a really great way to to destroy your life the week of earnings or or the week at the end of the quarter. Yeah, if I think about revenue governance um, and why is it such a hot topic right now? Right, it's the number one topic that I am having conversations with every board member that I talk to, every CEO, every CRO. Um, I think about five years ago, I had the conversation with 
a, a president of a business services company that's a, a multi-billion dollar company. It's a customer clarity. And they said, hey, what, we're, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to drive more accountability, more discipline, more rigor, more behavior. We're trying to control it. And revenue, as everyone knows, is a team sport, right? There's, you know, revenue critical employees all over the place. They're not just in sales. They're in, you know, marketing and pre-sales, finance and post-sales. So you get all of these revenue critical employees. They need to collaborate on revenue. Of course, we call that revenue collaboration. But on revenue governance, it's um, ensuring the right outcomes, ensuring that the rigor and the discipline uh, of the systems making sure it's fully instrumented so you could measure everything that's being done by every individual in the most important business process. So that's why we call it governance. And um, a lot of boards are asking, hey, they're asking their CRO, what's our revenue governance strategy? And a lot of CROs, Chris, they look at their boards like a deer in freaking headlights. What, what do you mean? I don't, I don't understand this. And uh, it's shining a light on that there needs to be a level of discipline and a new level of system to be able to run this well and to govern it. And if you think about what's happening around us that's outside of our particular industry, when I think of, you know, FTX, you think of crypto, you think of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, all of these See, all of this uh, uh, business level um, drama that we're seeing is really around lack of governance. Okay, so what you will see over the next, you know, two to, th two to three years is you'll see a real focus on boards around revenue governance and giving them confidence that the systems that are in place have exactly what they need to reduce the risk when numbers are being called that reduces the risk on the retail investor who's trying to invest in that stock. And I think everybody wins in that regard. And so how would you today, Andy, you know, because the interesting thing is given Clary's what, about a decade old? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, that's right. One trillion revenue under management. So how would you, A, define revenue governance? If I'm a founder, CEO, CMO, CRO, how should I be, th what, what is revenue governance? Yeah. And then we can talk about sort of ways in which I can achieve a, a, a high level of proficiency in it. Yeah, revenue governance is, the simplest way to think about it is how you control revenue. How do you control the outcomes? If you think about, uh, we have a, the industry calls it revenue collaboration and governance. Revenue collaboration is how you run it. Revenue governance is how you control it. So what's, what's happening in the industry is what people call revenue leak. Revenue leak is the revenue that your company has earned, uh, but you've yet to capture. And it's happening all over the place. Every C, any CRO, CRO that we talk to. Um, they know that they have revenue leak happening and they don't know where it's going on until they deploy Clary. And we have what's called a revenue leak assessment. We can identify leads that never get touched, the targets that go stale, opportunities that are slipping. They have no idea why they're slipping there and commit deals that are closed, lost for no reason. These are examples of, of revenue that is leaking all over the place. 
So governance, revenue governance, is putting the right systems in place, the right instrumentation, the right rigor to ensure that you could stop your leak and get to a world where the industry calls it revenue precision, which is your full capture predictably and repeatably every quarter over and over again. And then also the ability to de-risk any of your revenue process, because what people don't realize is without thinking through a revenue governance lens, there's just so much hidden risk that happens every day of every week of every month of a quarter. And so not only do we get revenue precision where we're driving more efficiency, growth, and predictability, but fundamentally the actual business architecture in the revenue process has very little risk associated with it, which is a, a big topic of conversation at boards. Well, it's interesting because if you say revenue collaboration is how you run slash maybe manage revenue and revenue governance is how you control it. I think some people could hear that Andy and go, well, revenue is inherently an uncontrollable uh, process or an uncontrollable outcome because, you know, the customer's buying behavior changes, the customer dictates the way the sales cycle works, not the buyer or not the seller. Um, if you're in the B2C world, you know, who knows? Things are unpredictable. Uh, if you're in the B2B world, uh, typically one or two big deals might sway things in a, in a huge way for you. And so my point is, I think a lot of people would say, well, hey, Andy, revenue is inherently uncontrollable. So how can you really govern the uncontrollable? Well, I think that the best operators, Chris, the best financiers, the best, the best investors, what makes them great, the great operators and investors is that they are, um, they're putting in world-class infrastructure to make it predictable and to take all this signal in. I think a couple of things. One is you didn't have the technology and the APIs and the machine learning that, that we have now, like what, what's changed? that makes your comment obsolete it's the fact that we have all this data it's the fact that we have machine learning and now generative ai that's helping us predict the most important question in business will you meet beat or miss on any dimension current quarter next quarter pipeline we're going to create geo product line segment etc right it's a multi-dimensional revenue rubric i'd also say that you know we have a lot of uh, private equity firms and venture capital firms that bring us in, they buy a company, they invest in a company. And the first thing that they do, Chris, is that they drop Clary in because they want to figure out in a larger context, we just took this company private. Let's go figure out where things are broken because the PE firms want to drive more efficiency, growth, predictability, right? Get it into a good flywheel state. Starts with identifying all the leaks starts with driving more revenue governance, revenue collaboration, and then moving the company to a point where they're achieving total revenue precision that then gets it into a flywheel state and then allows that PE firm to either sell out into the market or to take the company public. And we're a big part of that. So fascinating. And uh, 
I couldn't agree more. The other piece I would add to it that's fascinating is what uh, AI has taught us, particularly of late, is that the value of what now we call training data. Uh. And so I think a lot of companies are waking up going, wait a minute, there's all this data that we created in the area of revenue. There are things in the three-headed hydra from CRM systems, from spreadsheets, from BI systems, where if we can make that data AI-able or transform it into AI training data, then all of a sudden we can begin to get control of the uncontrollable. And that's a brand new idea. Now, I'm curious, um, you know, if I think about my experience sitting on public boards, there is obviously the board itself. And then depending on the company, they have different subcommittees to look at different things. Obviously, every (laughs) public company has an audit committee by way of example, typically a compensation committee, potentially several others. Are Mm -hmm. we getting to a point where we will have a revenue governance committee? I think that there's a potential for this to actually sit underneath the audit committee. Um, I don't know that it needs to be another committee. The last thing the boards want, Chris, is another freaking committee. <laughs> okay. I don't want to so, be on the new uh, committee, whatever it is. <laughs> no, no, that's right. It's additional work. And, um, but, but what, what is important is the, the current recognition and the current momentum of sync in the boardroom around revenue governance and where should it sit? It feels like it's a really hand in glove fit underneath the audit committee uh, to make sure that everything is run well, right? When we, we want to make sure that our financials are audited every year, right? Um, we want to make sure that um, we think about all the compliance and security and regulatory frameworks by which we need to operate in a particular industry. Um, and now, yes, we need to make sure that the process by which we run revenue is not in a high-risk profile of the three-headed hydra. It's in a system that is designed and purpose-built to give us all of that instrumentation such that we feel confident that we're running a best-in-class system as fiduciaries. And that, that's, a, that's a train that is rolling fast. Now, given how much revenue you have under management, you have a very unique insight into what world-class companies who are <laughs> running revenue in a you know, super thoughtful, super powerful yep. way are actually doing. Yep. And we're experiencing this very weird economic time. Are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? You know, one report looks really good. The next report looks really bad. Or should we cut costs? Should we increase? Yep. Co- you know, we, <laughs> it's, it, every day is, is weirder than the next, it appears. And we get all this yeah. mixed signal from the economy yeah. and from customers directly. Yeah. So what are, are, are you seeing from your best customers in terms of, how they instrument, how they run revenue at a time of such weirdness. Yeah, what I'd say is having seen both the dot-com and the the GFC, Great Financial Crisis, um, the conversations that I'm having, Chris, with CEOs and CROs and CFOs are very different. It's not just about cutting costs. It's they're thinking about cutting costs and they're thinking about, hey, every drop of revenue matters. And um, we need to be very thoughtful 
about uh, ensuring that we have the our visibility into the leak that is occurring. So that that's point number one. Point number two is I, as we look across our data uh, and our systems, of which we've got, as you mentioned, a large uh, scale now. The economic indicators are uncertain. There's you know certain companies and in certain industries that are doing great. There's certain um, companies and industries that are not. Um, but what I'd say, what's what's common among all of them is uh, a heightened level of scrutiny, um, either around making sure that we can eliminate any leak that is occurring today, because it's the most important business process, um, and also making sure they're set up for the rebound. And I think that what, what I'm finding that's a new narrative, because some people are feeling some, some companies and some industries are starting to see pipeline creation getting better. Um, and how do they make sure that they've got their entire revenue motion? That's 13 week cadence of how they're running it such that when we do start to see a rebound in the economy that they're set up to take advantage of that in a way that is efficient, uh, that gives them what Wall Street loves to call durable growth over time in a consistent way that not just has growth that is consistent, that is compounding, but also is efficient, that is actually generating free cash flow over time. Thank you for that. Now, if I could shift maybe a little bit uh, personal, because of course we know each other and yeah, we've done a few things together. So when you and I first met, the way I remember it was um, you were on a quick timeline to get a bunch of work done that you wanted me to participate in. And um, so we just jumped in and started going. Yep. And I remember that we did a substantive piece of work, if my memory is right, you'll tell me, before we had put pen to paper and had lawyers agree on uh, documents and contracts and the like yep, yep. on either side. And so both of us were, uh, you know, under traditional sort of context, a little bit exposed because we're doing business to, with a new person yeah, very quickly on a yep. critically strategic project for the company. And we just met and we don't know each other. Mm -hmm. And we got, in my memory, we got a tremendous amount of very powerful work done in a relatively short period of time, yeah. concurrent with agreeing to economic terms and business terms and legal agreements. Yep. And a lot of the important work we need to get done got done before there was pen on paper on any of those agreements. Yep. So is that how you remember it? I do my, yeah, my, um, the way I would characterize it is this, we had a fantastic jam session, like immediately as soon as you, you came in and, um, I was sharing with you what I see, uh, what is happening and the, you know, a, to use your parlance to stand in the future, what, what we were thinking is going to happen and it's happened, right? It's, it, it's happening which is frankly kind of blowing me away. Um, and yeah, I think that there was a lot of trust. I do think that um, that probably would not have happened 
um, if we didn't have a common connection through Jim Getz and Sequoia and, you know, Jim saying, you guys get together, start working on this now. I love you both. I trust you both. Um, there's going to be some great stuff that comes out of that was his instinct. And generally his instinct is spot on. And, you know, he's a legend in, in the industry. And as, as you know, you know, when he says, Hey, get together, you get together. And I think Jim we, yeah, <laughs> Jim and I think we, we inherently both took, took the risk, right? We said, Hey, because of the trust through that proxy of Jim, we just started jamming. And I feel like what happened is Jim knew the ethos of both of us and that we'd figure out the commercial side and, uh, it's worked out fabulous. And, you know, we're having, we're still jamming. Chris. <laughs> my <laughs> guitars are ready for you at, at, at a second's notice. But I have ref reflected on that a lot, and I shared the story with some uh, younger folks in my life. And here's what I find so remarkable. Mm. For that to happen that way, the number mm. of things that must be in place are actually quite extraordinary. But if I synthesize it all down, what ended what what creates that is reputation Good. and now that i've gotten to know you and you know work with you and everybody at clary for a while now clary's one of the most extraordinary cultures i've seen in a very very long time andy thank you I no no that. bullshit um and i don't respect a lot of modern cultures because they're too mamby pamby touchy feely Everybody gets a cookie. Let's mm -hmm. set up a committee to make everybody feel nice. And look, there's some of that that's very positive. So I, I don't want to sound yep. like a fucking maniac ogre. Yeah. But we're seeing it now in the discussion in Silicon Valley where there's this whole discussion of we need to move to a, quote, performance culture. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd gotten away from that. And the thing I find fascinating about Clary is Clary has, I think, many of the positive components of what you might call a, a softer, more gentle culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about whipping the horses, of course. Yeah. And and we bring ourselves to work and we want to enjoy and respect and admire and even have friends at work. It's a huge part of our life and, and being sensitive to these things I think is important. And yep. at the same time, Clary has this culture of, yeah, yeah, we're very nice. We're very welcoming. We're, we're very friendly. We're very modern in our way of thinking about bringing the whole person to work and all the mm -hmm. good new shit. And, Hey, by the way, produce results or you're not going to be here anymore. Yeah. And so I saw it in our initial working relationship, and now Man. I see it in the company, and I know where it comes yeah. from. It comes from you. And so how is it you built this culture that is trusting, uh, modern, and it's sort of in, in touchness with the more human side of, of work, which I think is very important. Yeah, but did not go into this mamby pamby world where the committee about the bake sale and everybody's feelings is more important than the revenue. Yeah, I think what comes to mind, just uh, if I my response to that is um, a sentence that I heard um, the other day on a, a in a presentation by another CEO that is the CEO of a, um, a large conglomerate. They're out of Florida, $45 billion market cap. He said, if you're nice, 
there's no growth if in the in the employee if you're tough there's growth and i thought about that more um what i'd say is that i i'm i'm all heart it's like God, i am i am heart first and i i write that down every morning i write down heart first i literally draw heart and i draw first and then i say family first and i think about um how i'm going to treat people um but there's heart and there's backbone and um through um spending a lot of time with my head of people laura mckinnon who is one of the best what a rock star she is what a surprising rock star she is she's incredible. incredible she's one of my best hires of my career no question um we've been able to take the heart and backbone um, you know, hard first, start with love, but you know, you gotta be tough. You gotta step up and you've gotta, you know, hold people to their commitments. Uh, that just as a genesis, uh, is something that, um, is starting to magnify over time. And the cast, the crew underneath my head of people, um, is one of the best crews I've ever seen in my career. They are just, and, and they, they're putting in the culture-based systems that are take care, EQ, uh, mindfulness, uh, mental health. They're putting in the career pathing and the growth. And they're also putting in the, you know, the behavior changes, you know, and I'll give you an example that we're driving three different behavior changes this year. Relentless self-accountability courageous conversations and data-driven and this is new a new framework that we're driving across the company so the thing that's been powerful yes i i agree with you that it all starts with the founder and everyone says it's the ethos of the founder you know then starts to matriculate across the company but it's when you hire a world-class um chief people officer and they bring their team together you can actually multiply the culture as you scale, which I have actually never seen in my career before until Clary. So I, I feel like I'm still a student of this culture at scale. And it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of. If not, if not the, it's the thing I'm most proud of. And I think you should be. I mean, I know you and the company well enough now um, and have spent enough time with enough people in enough different parts of the company that it's there. And how I see it is people are generally happy. People are willing to have tough conversations. People have very little respect for the org chart in a good way. It's a very, very performance-oriented culture. I mean, I've seen you fire people because they don't perform. And so it's not a uh, everybody gets a cookie kind of a place. And so I think it's a remarkable, remarkable blend. And the other component of it that I think is incredible is, you know, one of the reasons I stopped doing advising kind of consulting work was I was tired of, of being more passionate and taking it more seriously than anyone at the fucking company I was with. <laughs> and Clary executes. Holy fuck, does Clary execute? I mean, your your product organization has been great with me, and I find it extraordinary that we can be in a jam session and 
yeah. immediately shit starts to move. And then there's a prototype and then there's an announcement and then there's a beta and then there's a GA and it all seems to happen within a period of weeks in some cases. And, and same thing on the sales side. I saw the sales organization adopt the new category design quickly and, and so forth and so on. And so it's interesting. Even today, smaller companies, you know, I'd say Clary's a mid-sized company, mm-hmm. seem to get stuck in mud. Yep. Like the CEO, the senior team can't move the company because they haven't built a culture that values execution and results. Mm. Whereas I've experienced it myself at Clary, I can be in a jam session and very shortly thereafter, things are being announced and delivered to customers, not not meetings yeah. are happening. I mean, somebody's yeah. doing something with a customer as a result within you know a very short period of time. So, you know, if I was a CEO coming to you saying, hey, how do I make this this modern blend? I want to be a yeah. modern CEO who's, who's who wants people to bring them their best self to work, who cares about people's well-being as a whole person, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, hey, man, if we don't fucking sell something around here, nobody eats. Yeah, uh, let me comment on a few uh, things that you mentioned. First of all, I don't think that we, I want to mentioned the uh, your commentary about the fire people um i think we say goodbye to people because um this is, I'm not a, you're, this I'm, is you're a much I'm, nicer person than me <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm not a huge fan of saying hey you've seen you've seen me fire people we've found that hey people are not a good fit and we're not a good fit for them right so it's our job as executives to understand hey it's just not working out and we still love those people they're still great people right and we actually whenever we're letting someone go we literally turn on a process where we help them find jobs. I just want to call that out. Uh, but yes, if it's not working, we are um, accelerating the change. Um, and it and everybody wins about that. That employee who's been struggling here, not a good fit for some reason, they get to go to an- another company and they can blossom at that company. It's just not going to happen, right? So I just want to call that out. The second thing on... Um, uh, as I think about scale and then being ha- having velocity at scale, the one thing I'll say is that we're not any different than other companies, Chris. We have our velocity things that, you know, challenges that we're not, uh, as, as a company gets bigger, there's more, just a lot of large numbers, there's more problems, right? And part of it, what I've found is that why have we been able to maintain velocity? I would say that we, there was a point at the company where we're starting to see as we started to scale that we were missing system level thinkers and systems at scale. And um, that was a new muscle and a new motion that we had to put in place and that we're still putting in place, but we're starting to see this pay off in such a big way with um, so much more velocity coming out of R&D. We announced Clary Studios, which is the ability, it's our no-code framework and admin and config capabilities where people can bespoke build any revenue workflow that they want and continue to gobble up created Hydra. We announced Rev, you know, RevGPT, um, which is like, you know, ChatGPT with a quota, um, the cousin of ChatGPT. Um, so there's some fun stuff coming out it's, of that. It's ChatGPT's cousin who makes sure we make the mortgage payments. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That, that That's doing the real work. Uh, not, yeah, not just building uh, um, 
uh, scripts and uh, answering uh, exam questions for for the students. <laughs> uh, so I, what I'd say is that um, the one of the biggest reasons why I'm excited about the next decade of work um, is the velocity that's coming out of the company the people that we're bringing into the company because we're bringing in talented, talented people that I'm just blown away by. Um, and the sort of intersection that we sit at, right? We're in sitting in the most important business process. We're transforming it. Machine learning is going to be the next big thing in our lives. Um, and we just happen to be at the intersection of both of those things. So that's, that's, that's exciting. Um, and it also, I would say for me personally, I feel a lot of pressure, um, as a fiduciary, um, to help our customers realize their fullest potential, um, uh, to help our employees realize their fullest potential. There's more customers, there's more employees. And, um, so, you know, the one thing I'm trying to work on is getting some more sleep <laughs> because <it's> sleep, <laughs> sleep, sleep is tough. You know, running a company, let alone being in my fifties, that, that combination of those two is just tough. <laughs> tough. Never mind the environment we've been in for the last handful of years. I know. Yeah. And, uh, I would imagine like many things that that pressure is good. You, you want that pressure to feel like yep. you've put yourself in that position to deliver. Yep. You have big promises that you've made to yep. investors, to customers, to partners, and obviously employees. Yep. But at the same time, you know, a lot has been said about how lonely the CEO job is. And so, and I know you're an athlete and I know you're very close to your family, but yep. how do you deal with sort of the personal side of that pressure when it's feeling like less of a yeah. good thing than it otherwise yeah. might? Yeah. I mean, I'd say two things. Uh, first, I'll comment on the CEO is the loneliest job in the world. I don't agree with that at all. I think that depends on the CEO. If I look at my board and my management team, they, it, uh, it depends on who you have around you. Um, I lean on my board so much. We're talking every week. Um, they are not just, I, I, I feel grateful because a lot of the board, you know, most of the board members, they're not just investors that, but we've built companies together. We've got a lot of history. Um, we're friends. So, um, so that's really great. So I don't feel lonely. My E staff, I'm always, you know, getting their feedback on it. So we're, we're, a we're a, a crew of pirates that are doing something really special. Right. So in that regard, you don't feel lonely at all. Um, uh, what I, I, what I am most proud of in terms of the, um, last decade of work is the number one thing that I think that, uh, that has been my priority is my family. It's been my wife, Julie, and my two boys, Ronan and John Max. Um, I've given them everything I have and I've got, you know, much to their chagrin. You think I have process and methodologies and frameworks and tooling for Clary just to see my toolkit for helping my, my relationships, uh, my family, my boys. Um, and, uh, you know, I continue to feel most proud about their growth and, and our collective growth and, um, you know, being able to balance all of it. If I was to say the one thing that I've had to um, sacrifice, because as a CEO of a scaling company that's um, seeing more velocity and more success, you know, just being honest, I just uh, I've uh, had to sacrifice friends. 
Um, and it's been, you know, that's, that's the tough thing. Like if I, I have very, very little time and all of it is dedicated to my family and I don't, you know, and I, I miss my friends from high school and from college. And, but the good news, Chris is Julie and I are empty nesters. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. John Max is at NYU. He's my thespian. Uh, Ronan is at Redlands. He's my student athlete. Um, and they're both thriving. And so that's giving me time back. Um, and I'm starting to reconnect with my friends again from high school and uh, connecting with some friends from college and, um, and spending more time with Julie. So yeah. it's been, I'm feeling like luckiest guy on the planet. Well, congratulations. You've earned it. Thank you. In a Appreciate very, that. very admirable way. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, Andy? Uh, I'd like to see yeah, one last thing. I'll just say, Chris, I'm just enjoying the journey with you so much. Um, uh, it's, uh, you've made us better across every department. Um, your unorthodox think and style, uh, has opened up neural pathways, literally, um, across my team members. Um, <laughs> and it's just been, it's just been, a it's been an honor and I look forward to the next decade of work together. Well, thank you, brother. You know, I feel the same way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I stopped, um, my operating career and, and became an advisor, investor, writer, blah, blah guy, I dreamed of finding a CEO like you. Come on, Chris. No, I'm Please, serious. Don't, don't, don't. No, but like, <laughs> thanks. If we're going to say things, then we should say yeah. the things that are true. Appreciate that. Thank you. No, and I, I listen. I had to kiss a lot of frogs before I got to you. I, I quit. <laughs> no, I quit doing this beca because yeah, of all the fucking assholes. Yeah. yeah. And your commitment to do the uh, exponential different is extraordinary. And it's actually one of the things we didn't talk about. It is very rare that a category designing entrepreneur creates a category, dominates that category, rev ops in your case, and then wakes up and realizes for the next stage of our growth, and I'll use your words, we have to rise up. We can't yep. just live off, even though it's the number one job in the country, you saw that we have to move to the next level for this thing to go where you want it to go. And, um, that ain't that almost never happens in terms of the founder CEO being able to see that and B and I know they rarely fucking do it. That's why I quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow, so I can't thank you enough, that, Andy. You, you are the rarest yeah. of the rare and you're doing an incredible, admirable job. And I couldn't be more excited to be associated with you and Clary. Well, let me just say this after our lovely <laughs> concluding group hug here's my closing comment on this on um, the rise up move what uh what happened was the conversations with customers that's what forced us to rise up right when we started to see the use of our product outside of sales teams and it was in marketing and pre-sales finance and post-sales talking to the customer i we don't have a system. We don't have one system to allow everybody to collaborate. We went, oh, revenue collaboration. And then we started to hear from board members, from operating executives, 
that we need to control the outcomes. We want to control the behavior. We said, oh my gosh, that's revenue governance. So it was us, but it was really just a manifestation, revenue collaboration and governance, RevCG, of what the customers were telling us is going on in their world, which I'm just, you know, I'm just the messenger. Here we go. The prime minister. Thank Thanks, you, Andy. Chris. Okay. Pleasure, man. Well, there he is, yeah. the legendary Andy Byrne. You can find him at Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com. That's Clary.com. And Andy is a legendary follow on LinkedIn. Uh, Andy Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E, on LinkedIn. All right. We would like to thank, thank you, of course. Uh, thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us around here. Also, uh, word of mouth was, is, and always will be the most legendary form of marketing. If you get any value from these podcasts, please share with your friends. We appreciate your WOM, and we deeply appreciate your social shares, a.k.a. your digital WOM. So, hey, WOM it up for us, would you? Uh, don't forget my friends at Mighty Networks are the platform for creative entrepreneurs who want to grow community courses, memberships, and more. Check out MightyNetworks.com. My friends at Interview Valet are the way you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. They are the leaders in podcast interview marketing. They don't just get you on podcasts. They help you market your uh, guesting on podcasts to drive revenue in your business. Check out interviewvalet.com. And if you're looking for a way to make a difference, why not visit my friends at doctorswithoutborders.org. Médecins sans frontières, doctorswithoutborders.org. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking and exponential outcomes. Before acting on any of today's information, please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mystic, yoga instructor, and of course, category designer. Uh, all oddcasts do contain nuts, and all rights do remain perturbed. Please uh, be kind and rewind this tape before returning. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top podcasts. Sarah Knox and Jamie Day do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobas Brothers, uh, JR and RX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. Uh, we use Dolby ADHD technology, and we record every episode on Squadcast.fm. Uh, Chris Stapleton was right. Listen to Katie Lang teach kids category design. Oh, and while we're talking about category design, want to go to CategoryPirates.com and register for your free category design accelerator course right now. You, too, can learn to be a category pirate at CategoryPirates.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.